0: Well, kia Koto, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon, the week that was for the week's end. And this week in our grey-padded a studio in Parliament here, we have Max Rashbrook. Mash. Max, welcome, welcome into the studio. Thank
1: you. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, we remember the format here is that we bring in a tragic from the political economy, someone who's reporting on what's happening in and around government and the economy, and Max is in because of his expertise covering welfare, wealth and the likes at Victoria University and writing some books. He's already written a book through Bridget William Books and has got another one on the way. Uh, and I'll put the links to that in the the item that goes out on the kaka in the email and on the website as well. Great to have you in. Again, Max, your book that's coming up is going to talk quite a bit about the area of inequality of wealth and income and this week we got from StatsNZ a new experimental series looking at household wealth. Now tell us, has this solved the problem that New Zealand has with a lack of good data on household and
1: uh, wealth distribution? Um, Unfortunately I don't think it has. The stuff that Stats has just put out is great and it's really useful in its own field but the problem we have in New Zealand when it comes to wealth inequality is that we rely an awful lot for our stats on a survey of households that the wealthy generally don't want to take part in. And, and this happens internationally, and it's because they don't trust these surveys for whatever reason. They think that the data might be handed over to the IRD for uh, some investigations. And so they it's just very really hard to get them to take part. So the, the data we rely on for our stats the biggest survey in that, the biggest fortune in that survey was $20 million. When we know that. Oh, that's are, a TUI
0: billboard right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, and, and I mean, the good thing is that under David Parker's sort of instigation, Treasury and IRD are finding ways to fill in some of those gaps, but it's a, it's a big old problem in terms of just knowing what's going on.
0: One thing we do know quite a bit about is the value of property as measured by councils all around the country, but also there's some pretty fancy data analytics going into the property websites, homes.co.nz, which has just been bought by TradeMe. And of course, um, CoreLogic is, um, yes, that's an interesting reaction to that, (laughs) TradeMe buys homes.co.nz. The Commerce Commission had the same reaction, which was, hmm, this looks like it's concentrating some market power. We'll go into that later on. And it's certainly um, able now to fairly closely look at the value of land in particular, but land and property together. And these this experimental series uh, for to the end of March from StatsNZ did show us that in the years since COVID uh, started, there has been an increase in the net worth of households generally, although we're not again able to slice and dice it too closely along ethnic or age or location or quintile uh, lines, but overall, net household worth has risen by $402 billion, and that's at least more than half of that has come from the rise in the value of houses and land in the last year or so. And what struck me about this is, A, we weren't expecting it, well were we not expecting it? Because I had a quick look at some Treasury advice to the government five days before the big announcement about the start of money printing by the Reserve Bank, which came out on March. The 21st, I think it was, that amazing Sunday where Cabinet and everyone was coming together and thinking about lockdowns. The Reserve Bank came out and said they were going to start with a plan to print $30 billion to slash the official cash rate to remove loan-to-value ratio controls and to suspend plans for tougher Capital controls for banks. And this was designed to stabilise the economy largely by reassuring people in businesses and people who depend on the value of their house for their net worth to say, hey guys, you're not going to get wiped out here. We're going to stop prices from falling and we'll do whatever it takes and they did whatever it takes, and then before they knew it, <laughs> woof, she was off. And we saw prices rise essentially 30% over the next 9 to 12 months. And that has done amazing things across the country. 30% is the average across New Zealand for the house price index in the year since COVID. But in some places, it's much higher than that. So Wellington, 46%. Palmerston North, on on the on the Seine. I shouldn't be rude because I lived in Palmerston North for five years. It's a lovely place. But uh, the Manawatu is, you know, not, not no, it's not the Riviera. Well, that's probably cleaner than the Thames. Prices in Palmerston North up 61% in the last year. And now, that's great news if you own a home, not so great if you don't own a home. And I think the political economy impact of this shock to New Zealand, where suddenly, and it's the fastest growth we've ever seen in house prices, from an extremely high level to start with, and for a bunch of people, particularly young people who have been hit hardest in COVID, their jobs are the ones that have gone, they've had the most precarious jobs to start with. They're the ones who have the debt from, from student living. They're the ones who, have, who, who are having to pay more of their income out in rent, particularly in some places like Wellington where rents have risen significantly higher than in other places. And they're the ones, of course, who can't go overseas to get that little boost to their income and to improve their experience. So it's a tough time to be young, and we saw that in the results of a One Choice survey that came out this week showing that 88% of New Zealanders surveyed. Uh, There was 500 in the survey, um, statistically significant. 88% said the dream of home ownership in New Zealand was over. And I wonder, Max, whether the political economy shock and the way that this will reverberate through the years to come in terms of who we vote for, what sort of policies get put up, whether there's an attempt to reverse it. In a piece I did this week for a spin-off in the Kaka, I I described this shock a bit like the shock of 1991, when without expectation and without warning, we saw benefits slashed and significant cuts in government services, which ended up with Ruth Richardson losing her job at the next election Ah, but also the public saying never again we're having MMP. So what do you think might be the, f- the political
1: fallout from It's it's hard to know, and obviously it depends on a point that you've made often before, which is who turns out, which is what so much of politics responds to. It, it's really hard, and and again you've made this argument because you've you've you know one of the worst thing, one of the great sort of weaknesses of democracy is vested interests. You know when you get power bases. Built up, and you know, homeowners are a huge group, and they sort of do have a vested interest in a sense in keeping prices up. I guess the, the 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 question though is, well, and you come into inheritance here because you know, on one level, you would say, well, yes, these people are in houses, but their children can't buy houses. And you know, and often people, I think people's voting is motivated by what they want for their kids as much as their own lives. You know, it's very such a powerful thing. I want my kids to have a better life than I had, or to you know, to do well or whatever. So you'd think that that would drive change. The issue, though, is that people who already own houses will very often be the ones who are able to help their kids into home ownership. You know, and so we get the land of gentry effect that Shamabil Yaakov and others have been talking about. And I was talking to someone just yesterday you know, someone who's public servant has been able to buy a house with parental help. And they said, this feels like increasingly the segregation, the dividing line, the stratification in my friend group of people whose parents have been able to help them into home ownership and those who haven't. So that's, that's an awful factor that potentially entrenches the situation. The more the counter, I mean, I've just sort of started very loosely running some of these numbers because I find it interesting. And look, this is all like very like rough numbers, but I it sort of looks like if incomes grow at their expected rate for the next twenty years, you know, sort of two and a half percent above inflation, what you can sort of normally expect, and house prices fell forty percent over that time over two decades, we could roughly get back to affordability, you know, as defined by the median house is three times the median income if you make some assumptions about what the medium income is.
0: So 20 years on a good day, with a with a with a tailwind if you like of falling house prices.
1: Yeah. And I mean I and that and so you know prices would have to fall, you know, sort of three to five percent every year, basically for twenty years. So you get a cumulative, you know, something in the order of, of a 40% decline in the value of a property. And so I think you know the 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 trade-off that I think we're gonna have to ask homeowners is Are you willing to take that kind of long-term decline in the value of your property to see the next generation being able to buy houses? And there's two things there. A, it's going to be very hard to get people to accept that trade-off. B, that's still 20 years away.
0: Yeah, that's the (laughs) shocking thing. And the way the government has framed the issue at the moment, or at least the Prime Minister has, and it's amazing to me that we haven't seen a lot more detailed work here because the government sort of adopted this new target, this new way, this new North Star for running government, which was to try and get house price inflation to sustainable levels. But when we drill down a bit on this last year, the Prime Minister kept pulling us back to what house price inflation was doing before COVID, which was on average about 4 or 5% per year. She said that was more sustainable. Well, the problem is, she also said just before the twenty seventeen election that we had a crisis and housing was unaffordable, and since then house prices had risen thirty percent before COVID, and then they've risen another thirty percent on top of that. So, if she's saying that the sustainable, the thing that the government should aim for is four percent inflation in house prices, which basically matches income growth, that says, a, we'll never get to anything that what most people would call affordable, maybe, I mean, depending how you measure it, maybe it's three, four, five times income for a house price. At the moment, it's more like nine or ten. and Or maybe you say, uh, for renting in particular, that, you know, the bulk of the population shouldn't be paying more than 30% of their income in rent. Because at the moment, we have the highest rate of people in the country who are paying more than 40% of their income in rent, in the OECD. So we've got the least affordable rental affordability market in the in the world. So the government's target, if you like, is to not improve housing
1: affordability. Yeah, because I mean if, if prices just increase, you know, sort of four to five percent a year, that's faster than incomes increases increase. So houses would remain unaffordable forever. Yes. At least the Prime Minister's target.
0: Yeah, no, and, and we, we did push a bit on this uh, about, you know, are you really saying that you don't want house prices to fall because that's the implication, A, of your comments about 4 or 5% being sustainable. But also when we pushed her, she said, well, I can't allow that because for most New Zealanders, their house price is, is their main financial asset. And she was essentially saying my job as Prime Minister Is to protect the main asset of most New Zealanders, which is their house. What she's essentially saying is we're casting aside the 40 to 50% of the population who
1: don't own a house. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. I mean, I I doubt that she, in her heart of hearts, really believes that. But I suspect she doesn't think she can say that because, I mean, Matilda today, you know, a number of years ago, said house prices need to fall sharply, and people flipped out. You know, they did not like that at all. What I'm really curious about is there's been a couple of surveys in the last year which have shown a majority of people saying that house prices do need to come down. My problem with those surveys is I have a nasty feeling is that what people mean is everybody else's (laughs) house prices should come down in order to improve affordability. And generally, if there's anyone listening to this who has any involvement in polling, what I want is a poll that asks people how much of a decline in the value of your house would you take? I think that would be very interesting information that we
0: don't know at the moment. No, but I bet Labor's internal polling does it with focus groups, and it's the reason why they have taken this approach. But they should at least be honest about it and stand up and say, they never will be, but stand up and (laughs) say, hey, we've decided not to push house prices down, and if you thought we were here to make housing affordable for you, either to rent or to buy, no. You just need to suck it up, baby. And I actually wonder why we're not seeing more aggressive questioning from the Greens on this. Because the one thing that's missing in our political spectrum at the moment is someone standing up and saying, you're not really serious about this, are you? And here's here's why I think you're not being serious. And here's what you would be doing if you were serious.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean... You know, I don't think the Prime Minister is ever going to say anything like that. And this might be why you and I are not politicians um, <laughs> That's that, right. that we think like this. But, yeah, I mean, the, the Greens, you know, would, I mean, I think their approach, and they've been pretty open about this, and also what they say behind the scenes, is that, you know, they, they try to get maximum leverage out of their position inside the tent to the extent that they have one before they... You know, kick up a big fuss publicly about things. So one can only assume that they feel there's more stuff to be got from within the tent at the moment before they sort of hit the nuclear button.
0: Now, yeah, one, one can
1: one can question that judgment, but I imagine that's what's going on. And they have, I mean, Madam Davidson has been outspoken on some stuff around homelessness. You know, even though that's part of her portfolio, so they're not averse to going public on some of that stuff, but you're right, they haven't been there front and centre
0: on affordability. No, and the questions in Parliament, from from my point of view, are not aggressive. And I think there will be a debate within the Green Party about whether they have enough leverage, and the guts of the problem there is that in many ways the Green Party is a culture war party, and if they're being really ruthless about achieving the policy aims, they need to credibly be able to threaten to go with the other side, which... Of course, it uh, really pushes all sorts of buttons inside the, the the left of the party.
1: Yeah, and I just, I mean, even if that, well, I can philosophically see the argument why you'd want that to be a possibility, but I think that would tear the Green Party to bits. Mm. Frankly, yeah. you know, and it would just, and then you wouldn't have a Green Party at all. I suspect. I just, I just don't think. You know, I mean, I think, I think if you surveyed Green Party members. Probably 80% of them would say that the social justice stuff is just as important to them as the environment and so I don't I don't think the Green Party leadership could ever do anything different to what they do the question then arises why don't we have a centrist Green Party and I've written about this before and it's because I actually don't think there's enough centrists and National Party voters who care enough about the environment to making it to make it a voting priority Mm -hmm. I think they care but it's very soft And they will never put the environment above, you know, hip pocket, cost of living, state of the economy factors. They wouldn't put it above law and order and immigration and all those things. It's interesting, though, MMP really
0: depends on someone in the centre straddling both being the Venn diagram that sort of pulls in a bit of the voting of one side and a bit of the voting of the other and uses that outsized leverage, more than their 5% share, to be the tail that wags the dog. At the moment, though, my view is that the Green Party has become a vestigial
1: tail that's wagging and the dog doesn't even notice. I, uh, I think we need a lower threshold than 5%. Yeah. I think that's the key for it. If it was 2%, 3%, you know, you'd have a much wider range. Of, you'd probably have top in Parliament, for instance. You know, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Anyway, fun times on, on political economy. Let's talk about global political economy. In particular, I find this a fascinating crossover between the worlds of corporate power, and government power, and monetary policy power, where this week the IMF came out with a really fascinating paper. This, this really got me excited, and you can tell that I, <laughs> I need to get out more, but the IMF came out and said, hey, when you're running monetary policy, you need to take into account how much market power, particularly what they call monopsony power, this is the power of one company, to effectively boss around its suppliers and its workers, not necessarily just set the price for its consumers. And the the obvious case here, and and there's been quite a bit of uh, research done on this, particularly in America, and central banks have been thinking about this for a while. They wondered, for example, why there hasn't been much wage inflation over the last 20 years. One of the reasons is that companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, are able to exert enormous power, not just because of their network monopoly in terms of prices setting for their customers, but also the ability to set prices for workers and suppliers. And the obvious cases, you know, the Amazon, the warehouse that sets up in a small town and becomes the single largest employer in in, in a very short period of time, able to demand all sorts of subsidies and tax breaks from local government, to the point where there was a really interesting case last year, I think, where Amazon basically played New York (laughs) off against Chicago or something crazy. And in the end, there was so much of a sort of a backlash against this, the sight of Amazon bossing around the entire state, (laughs) that um, Amazon had to pull out of New York. The backlash was so great. And I think one of the reasons why um, Jeff Bezos' quick trip to space (laughs) this week, in which he, I mean, this is actually the best example of it, where when you have a look at what he was able to do, he came came back with his cowboy hat on, all Kubrick style. What's the movie where the guy rides the bomb down? Doctor Strangelove <laughs> comes out of the comes out of the, the rocket ship with the cowboy hat on. Comes and hey, I had a great time. Thanks a lot. I'd like to thank all of the customers and workers and suppliers of Amazon for allowing me to make all this profit and get up to
1: space. It was yeah, like, he said you paid for this. <laughs> you paid for this. <laughs> like people are supposed to be delighted <laughs> about that. <I'm- laughs>
0: And the horrible thing was that everyone in the audience laughed. And you can see it's the sort of thing when you have a bunch of sycophants around who laugh at all your jokes. But in the end, what they're doing effectively is rubbing it in the faces of everyone else who's watching. And I found that disconcerting but really interesting because the IMF is saying when you have companies like Amazon who are able to essentially keep prices very sticky It means that when you're a central bank and you're trying to stimulate the economy and get inflation going and get wages up, you have to push your thumb down on the scales that little bit harder because of these powerful monopsonies. And it's another case for antitrust uh, authorities and for governments writing rules to be used by antitrust authorities to think about. Not only are you making the economy more competitive and more efficient and helping to give a little, little bit more power to workers and consumers, but you're also helping your central bank with their monetary policy. And what I think, and I, I wonder your thoughts on this, Max, with our intellectual frameworks, the research and the thinking about our antitrust laws, you know, the the laws to make sure we don't have monopolies, whether we have done enough on this and whether we're thinking about the right things or really understanding how much these network monopolies online, these globalised network monopolies, have changed the, the ground rules for trying to stop monopolies from
1: being created. Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. I think it's... I mean, one of the greatest derelictions of the last you know, 20 or so years has been to allow these enormous monopolies to grow internationally And, you know, New Zealand in the last 30 or 40 years to let, you know, enormous number of sort of monopolies persist or oligopolies persist in New Zealand. I mean, they're far smaller companies than, you know, the international giants, but in their own fields, they're very dominant. You know, so we have a supermarket duopoly, for instance, which I don't think a lot of other comparable countries of the same size would tolerate. You know, we, and and again, you've drawn attention to this, we have, you know, very uncompetitive energy generation Sector where I think there's a fair bit of evidence that the, the big players there are basically able to exclude new entrants through various means, you know, by temporarily suppressing prices and profits until they drive other people out of the market who can't, you know, who don't have the deep enough pockets to do that kind of thing. Um, and sc-
0: screw the scrum in wholesale markets. I know that there's some debate about this, but a couple of years ago, some water was spilled from a dam. And some information about gas problems wasn't given to the market, which at least initially the electricity authorities said appeared to be you know, an un- unacceptable trading situation. <laughs> Eventually they eased up on it and no one was punished. And And now we have, for example, this week, we learned that Flick Electric has pulled out of the market in terms of recruiting new customers. The same with Power Kiwi, who've stopped investing in New Zealand and are now looking to expand in Australia. The you know, flowering of independence and competition we saw four or five years ago in New Zealand's pretty much ended. And it's not just in power. As you say, supermarkets, and it'll be really interesting to see what the Commerce Commission comes out with its um, current market study into supermarkets, which is ongoing. Uh, as we watch prices of building materials race higher, big announcements this week from Fletcher Building and Steel and Tube that um, prices of um, steel building materials were rising at double-digit rates, in some cases for the third or fourth time in the last year. And there's a lot of grumpiness around about some very big charges being applied by two or three of the big shipping companies. And, And the one thing that's really missing here is that the real problem in monopolies now are not within sovereign territories able to be policed by sovereign antitrust bodies, but across borders.
1: Yeah, I th- I think that's true. And I think mind you, although, you know, every company is headquartered somewhere, Oof. right? And I mean you look at the in the US, you know, there have been calls to, you know, at the very least break up bits of the Facebook empire. I mean, the fact that they were allowed to buy WhatsApp and other huge companies oh, are ab- absolutely outrageous. And, you know, I mean an American, you know, what they call antitrust, you know, outfits are looking at those kinds of things. So yeah, there, there are those huge problems, and and to come back to your earlier question, I think also the part of the problem is that the intellectual architecture of doing something differently isn't really there. I mean, I think there's a sense that there's a problem, but a lot of people feel pretty helpless in the face of it, and you know, in the 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 the, the frameworks, the way that we think about monopoly and oligopoly. You know are based on the problems of the 20th century you know for instance when you look at you know the, the tests often I mean certainly I think in the US you know the tests that the legislators have to look at or you know, enforcement bodies have to look at are, well you know is this thing going to harm consumers you know directly is there going to be loss of competition for consumers but the things that Amazon do for instance can be things that you know clamp down that put the squeeze on their suppliers you know, there's all sorts of different effects, and we actually need, yeah, we need a new intellectual sort of infrastructure. We need, we need a whole lot of new anti-monopoly powers and tools in our toolkit, I think, to deal with these these huge monopolies.
0: And that's why I thought it was so interesting to see three weeks ago the US President uh, Joe Biden come out with a, a, a range of measures to attack these monopolies. And also her appointment of a woman called Lena Khan who is now the Federal Trade Commissioner, in effect, the head of the Commerce Commission for America. And she has been very outspoken in saying that these uh, big companies like Facebook need to be looked at as breakup candidates. And uh, I certainly uh, think that that area of breaking up network monopolies, trying to restructure them, in a way, using some of the same techniques used in telecommunications, So, for example, in America... Uh, Mar-Bell, AT&T, was broken up. Unfortunately, it sort of g- globbed back together again like a big lump of mercury. But in New Zealand, I mean, one of the most effective interventions in our market, which has improved services, reduced prices, fostered employment, helped the economy generally, is the breakup of Telecom back in 2006 7 after uh, real concern about its dominance of the market into Chorus for the network and then Spark on top of the network, which has allowed a flourishing of competition and a driving down of prices. Um, They're still pretty profitable, but it certainly feels from a consumer point of view that it's much better. And I know that the Reserve Bank talked about the depressing effect on inflation from the growth of two degrees, which was not just the breaking up of the telecom monopoly, but also just some tweaky changes, you know, nudgy style things like improving number portability for mobile phones or uh, removing termination charges for between the two networks. Those sorts of nitty-gritty things that actually unleashed competition.
1: Yeah, and, and you know what I think about that is, I mean, firstly, that showed you the insanity of some of the stuff that went on in the 80s where they just sold off these state-owned enterprises with no thought about the fact that they were creating enormous private sector monopolies, you know, the absolute worst of both worlds. Second, something I think occasionally, which is slightly heterodox, which is that that unbundling the breaking up was done essentially by David Cunliffe, if I recall correctly, and I sometimes think actually, for all his failings, it's possible that David Cunliffe has made a greater political contribution to New Zealand than John Key did, like a more significant one, because what has Key done that's actually shifted the what did he do that in the final analysis shifted the dial on anything.
0: No, I mean, that, that's true, certainly from a, an economy-wide point of view. I mean, the, for example, and to be fair, a little bit fair to Key, he was the one who went into bat for the billion dollars of taxpayer money to roll out the broadband, which I think everyone now accepts was a good use of that yep. uh, separated monopoly yep, in terms of, it gave Chorus uh, that money to go out and do it. Although we now have discovered, of course, that a lot of those pipes were dug and uh, those tr- trenches were dug and cables laid by people who are working at much less than the minimum wage and are not fantastic situations. But you're right, Cunliffe was the one who drove it through with the support of, of Helen Clark. It was politically painful, and I'm sure it, it didn't win it a lot of friends in the big business side of town. But it, it really did set a template for us. Interestingly, the one significant thing that Key did, apart from the tax switch, which I have yet to see Treasury actually do the test work to prove that uh, neutral equity thing that (laughs) that key, key, Key said it was. I'd like someone to actually go back and have a look at that, because the idea that you can put up GST and cut taxes for middle to high income groups and not have some sort of equity problem is an interesting one. But the one thing that he did do that was large was sell off the big three power
1: companies. Well,
0: 49% of Yeah, that's right. And and because they were much more unleashed and in the service of private shareholders, what they did was gear up and really push hard on their monopoly powers to pump enormous amounts of cash, to be frank, back to the government as well. And this is one of the problems we have here now is that the organisation in charge of writing the rules and trying to create a fair market and a fair structure for everyone is a beneficiary of an unfair market.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and there's all sorts of problems like that sort of riddled through the system. I think one thing, I'm, the reason to be optimistic about the chances of dealing with all of this, you know, again, and I always go back to history and these things, is, you know, and I think particularly about the American history of these things, I mean, there was a huge movement little over a century ago, you know, the original sort of antitrust movement, the early 20th century with the Sherman Act and things like that in the States. And, you know, and that was hugely successful in pushing back against. because people forget that the, the monopolies that existed, you know, in sort of early capitalism, if you like, late 19th century, early 20th century, were outrageous. You know, I mean, the the Rockefellers, you know, the original Rockefeller, I mean, he did stuff that I think would make even Jeff Bezos blush. You know, I mean, he owned all the oil and a whole ton of other things, and he owned a lot of the trains, and he wouldn't carry other people's stuff on his trains. I mean, it was just nakedly anti-competitive stuff. I mean, extraordinary practices. You know, and those were really successfully overturned.
0: Yeah, luckily, due to some pretty effective and aggressive journalism, we've got a. I mean, one of my absolute heroes as a, journalist is a woman by the name of Ida Tarbell, who wrote for um, a a magazine called McClatchy's, uh, and that name still exists in American journalism, and then wrote a particular book which essentially unmasked the the trust practices of uh, Rockefeller, the oil trusts, and the, the railway trusts, which led to the eventual breaking up of those trusts by... Teddy Roosevelt, and then an extension of that under his cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he was president in the 30s and 40s. And in many ways, those interventions by actually Republican um, presidents in America, sorry, no, one was Republican, one was Democrat, both from pretty silvery spoony backgrounds, was those interventions were some of the most effective in freeing up competition. And, and one thing I'm sort of surprised at is that I think often the, the most progress you see in political situation or policy debate is when you have unusual alliances between both sides of politics. So, for example, you, know, you see an unusual alliance between conservatives on the left, particularly the green left, and conservatives on the right who come come together (laughs) to stop things like development. Or, for example, you know, there's some really interesting, on occasion, you'll see the most extreme libertarians and those on the left coming together for universal basic income support. But I'm surprised we haven't seen an interesting combination of, you know, really pro-competition market forces saying... You know, as long as there's a free, clear market with some good rules and everyone's got all the information and they're going at hammer and tongs, that's perfectly fine. And then on the other side, people on the left saying, well, capitalism is the worst of all the others except, except, <laughs> except, uh, what's the word, what's the phrase that? The worst um,
1: system we've tried except for all the others. others. <laughs> exactly,
0: yeah. As long as you're properly regulated. So why don't the this extreme left and extreme right to come together on this? To say, okay, let's unleash a thousand competitive blooms to drive down prices, um, improve efficiency and productivity and all of those things, because there is a real danger here that You know, let's say you have a, someone who isn't, I was going to say someone who isn't as um, friendly as Jeff Bezos and (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg, but uh, you know, let us someone who's really, really ugly, you're doing some awful things, Murdoch, for example, (laughs) You, 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 I mean, it's, it's worth controlling these beasts and, but the problem is, unlike during the age of Rockefeller and Roosevelt where things could be controlled within borders. I mean, you did have a, a national government in, in America, even though it was quite a federalized system. Getting sovereign governments to agree on everything, anything to joint regulate transnational companies is a real issue. And it's interesting, we're starting to see a carving up of the world between the European Union, which is pretty aggressively hammering away at the big tech companies in all sorts of ways, going after taxes, trying to improve competition, uh, privacy. you got America, which is pretty nakedly pro-American, these tech companies, and even Donald Trump, who was no fan of the tech companies, wanted to make sure that the profits came back to America, even if they weren't being taxed. And then you got this China, which this week penalised Didi, which is Shuxing, which is the Chinese version of Uber, very aggressively for trying to list on the US market. And you, you end up with three different spheres of competitive regulation, and governmental power. The Europeans, Chinese, and the Americans. And uh, it would be nice if they got together on some of this stuff and and fought back against the the Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. Just to finish up, Max, um, we've forgotten in all this drama around COVID and, of course, plenty of other reforms going on with RMA, local government, Three Waters, DHPs, (laughs) I don't know how any cabinet minister gets any sleep, but, you know, in theory, we have a review going on about accommodation supplements and working for families, which which came out of the um, big announcements in the budget, which were very much focused on increasing benefits. But the benefits side of things is sort of one leg of a three-legged stool. You've got the benefits, and then you've got accommodation supplement and working for families, what are you seeing or what sort of reform could we get out of this and might we see some real action in the next couple of budgets before the election?
1: Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting because I think there's a feeling within government that, you know, oh, well, they've, they've done the benefit increases, you know, so that's that's solved. And now they're sort of moving on to look at work for families. And they have always had this long... I mean, Carmel Sepuloni has always said, we've got this work programme and there's short-term and there's medium and there's long-term bits of it. And I actually think that that's true. It's questionable how strong they'll ever be when they get to the really controversial bits of it. But look, they've done some decent benefit increases. There is all the,
0: also the assumption that they're going to have a majority uh, if they get back in in the
1: next couple of terms. Sure. Um, <laughs> which, yeah. But I mean, you know, I mean, conceivably, if they, if they did win in any shape next term, they might be reliant on the Greens, which would, you know, put, push them to go further, a lot further on welfare. Hypothetically. the Greens
0: have no leverage, though. Where are the Greens going to go? This is the thing that Labor can do whatever it wants, and the Greens say we'll do it. What? And you say to the Greens, "What are you going to do? Go with go with National? No. This is the problem. I, this is why I think the Greens are toast.
1: Well, until they, they
0: I, find some leverage. I and think and if it
1: were just them and Labor, there would be at least. I mean, because they still got some things out of Labor in the twenty seventeen term, not a whole heap, even when Labor mostly had to deal with New Zealand first, I think, and then there would just be the fig leaf thing as well, oh, well, we have to do this because the Greens are forcing us to do it, which would be a convenient way for Labor to get some of the stuff over line. Mm. I, I and, and by 2023, I think they might be a little bit more reckless because I don't think they could imagine at that point they'd get 12 years. So there might be a bit more of a, okay, right, here we go, last term, okay. let's get stuff done. Mm. We'll see. Mm. The thing about working for families is that the boosting it is really important because the welfare expert advisory group said, hey, you need to do a whole lot of stuff with, with benefits and you need some big increases in reforms to how working for families operates. So, you know, if Labour wants to claim that they're doing what the welfare expert advisory group told them to do, there's a v- really big mandate there. There's also a huge issue, and I'm actually working on a piece about this at the moment, One of the things that's happened in the welfare system over a long period of time is that main benefits have been allowed to erode a lot in value and so they're basically insufficient for people to live even in a very minimal sense, let alone enjoy any dignity. So what has happened is that the top-up payments which are supposed to be just add-ons for a few people with extra costs like accommodation supplement and what's called temporary additional support have become permanent enduring parts of the system. Not only Although are, with
0: extra sanction, sanction levers added on, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, well, in particular, really strong clawbacks. And this is a real problem because with both recent rounds of benefit increases, and this will be a problem again in the future ones, a lot of people have not got the full value of the core benefit increase because when that goes up, your entitlement to accommodation supplement and temporary additional support can go down. And in a small number of cases, people have even actually been worse off net when the benefit increases because they lose so much they get tipped over or under thresholds. And so you just have this terrible, terrible reliance on all these extra payments. And, you know, the way to solve that really, actually, I think, is to increase the core value of benefits. And then you wouldn't have these horrible multiple interacting sort of clawback type situations, which also renders the situation, the you know, system, intensely complex. I mean, if you want to look at the documentation for who is eligible for temporary additional support, and by the way, there's about 80,000 people in New Zealand who guess it. There's 350,000 people who get accommodation supplement. For context, there's about 350,000 people who get a main benefit. Now, those aren't all the same because some people who get accommodation supplement are working families who don't get benefits, so there is a total crossover. It's quite some Venn diagram. It's an, Yeah, it's really intense. But anyway, the documentation around temporary additional support, it goes on, you have to scroll down for pages and pages to get through it. There are multiple different layers of calculations about your incomings and outgoings. It is a nightmare, and I've talked to people who have said, these people who are already on sickness benefit, dealing with the system, has led to me being hospitalised. Like the stress of it is yeah. so intense. So there's a huge job for labour, which they have not really even, barely grappled with, about changing how the whole system operates.
0: And then there's the inter- interaction with work as well.
1: At the other side, where if you you know you <clears throat> your first
0: ten hours of work are essentially are given away, and the the marginal tax rates at the, once as you're getting out of that. That, that that area of working for families and and various
1: benefits are just awful. So they, the, I mean, they the one one of the good things they have done is they have improved that a little bit, you know. So you can now earn I think it's one hundred and sixty dollars a week before your benefit starts being taken away from you. That's not much, but it was eighty dollars a week, I think. So Labor has done a bit of work there, and that's good. But yeah, there's still huge problems, and once you get over that one hundred and sixty dollars a week then, yeah, you can lose, I mean, at some points in the scale, you know, 80 90% of your income. You know, so My
0: kingdom for a universal basic income. And you look at New Zealand superannuation and go, oh, my God, that's so freaking simple and brilliant.
1: Yes, I, I don't think we could afford to do that for the whole population, but that's that's probably a, a ah, discussion for another day.
0: So you, you haven't seen how the Reserve Bank prints money lately. <laughs> anyway, a discussion for another day, and I look forward to it, particularly as we get more results from that reform. Uh, Max Rashbrook, it's been a real pleasure having you in our grey padded cell today. Max, who works with Victoria University, has got a book coming out with Bridget Williams Books. I'll put all the details into the text item that goes out with this podcast. This has been a good fun hoon around the political economy here on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. Thank you to Mash- Max Rashbrook. Thank you very much. Kaki and Have a great weekend, everyone.
1: And we're out of here.